Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through to 27. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because the crowd because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming his way. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. He put this money to work. He said, until I come back. Put this money to work until I come back. But this... But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied because you have been trustworthy in a small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put your money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they replied, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. In 1982, the Sinai Peninsula was on the page of every newspaper in the world. After three years of preparation, Israel had finally honoured the terms they had agreed to in the Camp David Accords, and they had handed back the whole of the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. There was chaos. When the Israels left, they took everything with them. Everything that could be 
was moved, unscrewed, dismantled, or otherwise heaved onto flatbed trucks and driven north. The pans and cookers from the hotel kitchens, the sinks and doorknobs from luxury apartments, even the tiles from the walls were stripped off, packed up, and shipped out. And, of course, they took all the food. It was at this time that a rather naive British university student by the name of Andrew Bill decided this was the time in the summer to visit the biblical sites of the Sinai Peninsula. So in the heat of early August, he travelled through Israel and arrived at the new Egyptian border crossing across from Eilat with a 1966 tourist book in hand and a 20-kilo pack on his back. Andrew soon found out that things had changed a little bit since 1966. After several hours crammed into a bus with a sweating mass of humanity and sundry livestock, he finally arrived at his first port of call, Nueva, on the coast of, the, of Aqaba, only to find the town shut up. The neat grid of streets was lined with boarded-up stores. Weeds were growing up through the sidewalks. Eventually, he managed to find some falafel and some bread, as dehydrated as the desert itself, and that night he slept on the beach. Underneath the boardwalk, burrowing deep inside his oppressively hot-down sleeping bag, trying to escape the cloud of mosquitoes. As the days followed a similar course, Andrew began to associate more and more with the plight of the Israelites. It may not have been 40 years of privation and hunger, but as he made his way south, it certainly felt that way. Other previous tourist towns were now empty shells, all the more melancholy for what they had been so recently. At least the Israelites had manna from heaven, which is more than he could say for himself. If he was lucky, he found a jar of jam or some crackers, or one day, the luxury of it all, he found a can of sardines. But it didn't matter because Andrew had his sights set for the southernmost point of the Sinai at Sharma Sheikh. According to the guidebook, this was the great oasis of tourism. But like every other mirage, Sharm faded before his eyes in the midday sun. Like the towns that had gone before, Sharm had become a ghost town. Gone were the tanned couples promenading and the tables spilling out into the street, the bikinis beauties, the expensive boats, the cool palm-decked lobbies of the big hotels, all gone. The only movement now came from a few decrepit old Mercedes-Benz taxis kicking up dust and occasional Bedouin in his long robes, leading a, a group of camels through the streets. Andrew was so hungry by this stage, he was even ready to break his vow and force down another falafel ball. He started combing the back streets for a restaurant. The locals had to eat somewhere, didn't they? He approached a few people, but they only shook their, shrugged their shoulders and pointed off in some vague direction. It was then that Andrew saw a Bedouin man and asked him in that international language, does he know where any food is? To Andrew's surprise, the Bedouin man beckoned him to follow. 
Staying about 30 yards ahead of him with long strides and flowing robes, the Bedouin set off through the maze of back streets of Sharm. After each corner, Andrew became increasingly disoriented, more and more concerned that he was being led into some sort of trap. After about 15 minutes, he was so lost that he had no choice but to go on. And then suddenly the Bedouin stopped in front of a building and without a smile, pointed up a set of stairs and gestured that there was food up the stairs. He repeated the gesture, urging Andrew on up the stairs. On the second landing of the building, the Bedouin forced open a door that hung loose on its hinges. Walking into the room, the first smell was the stench of singeing, thick shag carpet. Then as Andrew's eyes grew accustomed to the smoke, he saw a group of Bedouin men around a campfire that had been made on the floor from the, the drawers that had been ripped out of the walls. For the next hour, Andrew sat on the side of this main group, leaning against one of the walls. There was no attempt at conversation, nobody spoke. But as the fire died down, the Bedouins slowly took chunks of meat, put them on their daggers, and rested them on the coals of the fire, and carefully cooked them. And as each skewer was cooked, they'd carefully laid in it on a piece of panelling that had been ripped from the wall. After a while, they took this sheet of panelling with the heaped-up meat, added some salad fixings and presented it to Andrew. Andrew was so famished by this time that he just gobbled the food down without thinking. It was only when the meal was over that he realised what a bad situation he was in. Seeing no alternative, Andrew loosened his shirt, exposing his money belt. All his valuables were now on show, his watch, his passport a handful of traveller's checks, and a thick soiled wad of Egyptian, Egyptian pounds. Glancing quickly at the host, Andrew saw the, ho the Bedouin man's eyes open wide. With Andrew's heart in his mouth, he said the one Egyptian word that he knew, Bekam, how much? The Bedouin was shocked. Masari? Andrew shrugged, shrugged his shoulders, he didn't know what the word meant. Masari? The Bedouin said, Falus, Falus. Fumbling in the folds of his tunic, the Bedouin extracted an old, crumpled up Egyptian pound and waved it in Andrew's face. Here it is, the moment Andrew had been expecting for the last hour, dreading. Nervously, Andrew took out one of the bigger bills and held it out. Andrew's host said, No, not refused to take it. Andrew took out more bills and held them out. Still the Bedouin refused to accept it. It happens a third time. Just when Andrew is about to hand over the entire wad of money, the Bedouin leapt up, went over to the air conditioner that was hanging on the side of the, below the window, struggled with it a little bit, wrenched it open, pulled out a metal can and handed it gently over to Andrew and beckoned him to open it. Andrew opened the box to find it was full of money. Andrew picked up a few of them and looked inquiringly at, at the host. Seeing Andrew's confusion, the Bedouin leaned over and closed Andrew's fist 
around the money. Andrew looked up at the others, and they all nodded in encouragement. Suddenly, Andrew understood what was going on. The blood rushed to his face in embarrassment as all his Western preconceptions and prejudices collapsed around him. To these Bedouin, Andrew was not a condescending rich kid on vacation or a gullible traveler ripe for exploitation. They simply saw in Andrew another nomad who was in need. They saw a beggar. They were not trying to take Andrew's money. They were trying to give him theirs. I remember walking through the market in Damascus, hearing one of the traders call out, Come to my store, everything for nothing. And in a more sophisticated way, we hear this frequently in the West. People offering special free gifts when you buy from them. Not to mention the empty hope of the various faces of gambling, from lotto to the pokies and worse. And it's not surprising that many of us have become extremely cynical about the whole idea of free gifts. And with Andrew, we, always, we tend to feel that in the long run, there is always a cost. Even those of us who have claimed to be saved by grace, in reality, very often feel deep in our hearts that the message of the gospel really can't be true that ultimately there will come a payoff day and we better work pretty hard to be ready for that day. And the way the parable of the talents, which we had read to us earlier, has been interpreted over the centuries has simply encouraged this sort of belief. Throughout history, this parable, which is so well known to us, has been interpreted as a standard pattern that Jesus is warning us about the importance of using our gifts and abilities in God's service. It is so standard, and I'm sure you have heard this interpretation. The, the call is to use our gifts and abilities. This interpretation has become so common that in the English language, what was an ancient monetary measure, a talent, which was a weight of about 34 kilos, has entered our language to mean gifts and abilities. If you look in a standard English dictionary that gives etymologies, you'll discover that our word talent comes directly from this parable and the Aramaic term in this parable. That interpretation has become so standard. The interpretation of the parable as a call to hard work has its roots in the Catholic, ancient Catholic emphasis on salvation through good works but was carried over after the Protestant Reformation by pastors who needed help with the work of the ministry. The Puritan work ethic and the rising emphasis in the West on capitalism, productivity and efficiency have all reinforced the popularity of interpreting the parable of the talents as a call to hard work. And of course the desperate need for people to help in the work of the ministry of the local church makes it very attractive for preachers to use this as kind of a sledgehammer on their congregations to tell them, you better work hard. 
However, there are problems with this interpretation. The most significant problem is that the parable in the, the version that's given in Matthew 25 concludes with the third man being thrown in hell. So such interpretation means that if we don't work hard, we're going straight to hell. In other words, you're not saved by grace, but by your own sheer hard work. This is a very popular belief in many world religions. We heard it yesterday in terms of Islam. There's a level of that in Islam. But it's totally contrary to the teaching of the rest of the Christian scriptures, especially the teaching of Jesus, for whom the gospel is about receiving free grace from God and sharing it to others. That's what the gospel is about. We don't deserve anything, but God has done it for us. And the appropriate response is to do the same for others. Showing active love to your enemies, an act of grace. Turning the other cheek, an act of grace. Praying for those who persecute us. We have freely been given, we're called to freely give. That's what the gospel is about. And a closer reading of the parable shows that this is the same message here. It's not about our abilities, it's about grace and love and forgiveness. Good Bible interpretation always begins by looking at the context. In Luke, the first words of the passage is, uh, are, while they were listening, he told this parable. Well, what were they listening to? What comes immediately before it, as we heard, is the story of Zacchaeus. Most of you are familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. You know, we have this hated tax collector, probably something akin to a contemporary numbers man for the mafia, pretty hated in the community. A short man who was despised, who nonetheless, in his desire to, to, to see Jesus, defied all social convention and went and climbed a tree. You never see a man climb a tree in the Middle East, I can assure you of that. Now, Jesus could have chosen to dine with anyone in Jericho, but scandalously he'd chosen to dine with one of the most hated people in the community, this man Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed that this holy prophet cared enough for him that he wanted to eat with him, that his immediate response is, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay back four times. In gratitude for the gracious reception Jesus had given him, Zacchaeus had responded by showing grace to others. And this is what the parable is about. The treasure is not about our abilities. In light of the context, it's clear that the treasures are grace and forgiveness and love expressed in action. God has poured out his love and forgiveness and grace to some like Zacchaeus, overwhelmingly giving ten talents, if you like, to others far less, and the expectation is that those who have received this grace will multiply it to others. As Jesus in another place instructed his disciples, freely you have received, freely give. You know, the Pharisees had also received grace, but they often didn't realize it. We often malign the Pharisees, but actually the Pharisees were very religious people who feared God, like the final servant in the parable. But because of their fear of God and their desire to obey their master, the Pharisees lived and taught rigid holiness and harsh judgment, rejecting people like Zacchaeus rather than embracing and loving them. 
out of fear of God, they had buried their talent in the ground. In the light of the context, the message of the parable is clear. The message, the, the measure of our Christian life is not the number of our activities or our hard work, but in our ability to receive God's grace and love and forgiveness and share it with others. Of course, it's always a lot easier to talk about grace and forgiveness than to live it out in practice. Karen grew up in a conservative Baptist church that every Sunday preached the good news of salvation by the grace of God. Wonderful spoken message, but through the church's life and expectations, another hidden message was proclaimed loud and clear. Yes, you might be saved by grace, but the only way you can please God is through obeying rules and regulations and working hard. Like the Pharisees, this church had received grace, but had hidden the grace in the ground. The same is true for many conservative churches in the Middle East. In their fear of God and their desire for faithfulness um, to the gospel, they've built an environment filled with severity and legalism. The emphasis is on how far short we fall rather than on the remarkable possibilities that are embedded in each person as they experience God's love. I'd actually, but I'd suggest also the Christians in the West are not that much different. It's expressed differently. In much of the West, the level of divorce among Christians is much the same as that in the rest of society. And at the heart of much family breakdown is an unwillingness to forgive, an unwillingness to seek reconciliation, a tendency to see all the wrongs in the other person and a failure to acknowledge one's own wrongs, in other words, a lack of grace, the ease with which people move from church to church because they're unhappy with the pastor or other people, the fact that our churches have so little impact on a society in desperate need of agents of peacemaking and reconciliation, all raise questions about the extent to which we have understood the message of grace. We find numerous faithful church-going Christians in the West with, who with the mere mention of the word Islam respond in fear, who will walk by on the other side of the street when they see a Muslim woman in a headscarf. Are we so different from the priest and the Levite of the parable of the Good Samaritan? But I also struggle with grace. When I get angry with someone, where's grace in that? When I speak negatively about other people, where's grace in that? And in my failure to show grace to others, I demonstrate how little I have understood the grace that God has shown to me. And what a different difference grace and forgiveness makes for me and for everyone else around me. It's like being released from prison to a richer and fuller life. Stop for a moment and imagine how Port Macquarie might be different if every member of this congregation grabbed hold of the meaning of this parable and lived it out in practice. Where communication, love, and forgiveness characterize the life of our families to such an extent that people longed to come into our homes and share in that love and help where this church became a place where hurting, 
sinful people knew they could come and find love and acceptance as well as support and direction for a better way of life. Where members of this church were known in the community for their gracious speech and their generous hearts. Why don't we start that today? What act of grace can you show today? Is there someone in your family, in this church, perhaps a neighbour, who you need to forgive or ask forgiveness from? Do it today. Is there someone who you know who is living a life of anger or rejection or depression? What can you do today to express love to this person? Even a short text message or a phone call can have profound impact. It's a statement that you care. In the end, the measure of our lives as Christians is not the number of church programs we're involved in. It's not the sort of job or salary we have or the reputation we have in the community. It's not even the number of people who come to know Jesus through our lives. The measure of our lives is found in the extent to which we sow God's grace and forgiveness and love to those around us. We have freely received so much from God. Let's spread it around. Let's double it. Let's triple it. Let's share that love and forgiveness ten times over and see what God can do through us.